0: Glass. Ice. Pour. Hello, friends, and welcome to Whiskey and Rye. I am your host, Ryan Charles-Brown. It's great to be back with you again. If you are a regular listener, uh, excited to have you back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of the club. And if you're a new guest, thanks for being here. We're excited to have you. Welcome to the table. Welcome to the conversation. Um, This is a show where we hear real stories from real people who've been through and encountered some real shit. And I'm excited to welcome to the show today my guest, Matthew Rabsmith, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name properly. Got it right. Got it right. Awesome. Well, Matthew, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm excited to have you. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Oh, wonderful to be here. Excited to be a part of it.
0: So uh, you and I got connected after my last episode with Nick Warnes. You sent me a really nice email and said that you know you are doing work around uh, helping men with addiction, um, specifically sexual addiction, but not just that addiction in general. And um, you know that really resonates a lot with what we do here. We have really deep, open, honest, vulnerable conversations about what we as men struggle with and deal with, and um, addiction is a, a universal thing that we all deal with. And, uh, I think men specifically, uh, struggle with addiction in a lot of areas. So, uh, I'm excited to, to hear from you and, and to kick us off. I would love to know, um, you know, just a little bit about how, how you got into this work and, and what your, uh, what, what your passion is for, for helping men with addiction.
1: Yeah, no, it, uh, it was not a plan, uh, to kind of go into this field. Uh, this was one of those things where, Really, my experiences in life kind of forced me into this phase, and uh, and and I didn't have a lot of choices once I once I started opening up about what I had been through and what I had gone through personally. I, you know, it just seemed like more and more people were coming to say, "Hey, I I want that freedom too. Or I want to be able to let go of, of some of those um, some of those things that really kind of have me imprisoned." And I, um, I I started my career in doing work as a pastor. I was a youth pastor uh, in the nineties and in the two thousands, um, you know, when all that good, crazy, bad Christian <laughs> music was out. And you know, I was like the, the heyday, party.
0: man. Yeah. Yeah. The heyday, yeah.
1: that growth movement, you know, yeah. that was that was my jam and did that for a good long time, uh, before I went to seminary and wanted to get an education and then wanted to kind of go back into the pastoral ministry. That was the plan. My wife and I actually were, um, in California at Fuller. That's actually where we met Nick. And, and we had been through the MDiv program and, and while we were in that program, uh, a struggle that I had had specifically with pornography kind of crept back up. Mm. Um, It started slowly about six months into our marriage. Um, I'd been dealing with it my whole life, uh, had been hiding it my whole life. Um, I'd gotten really good at what we call faux vulnerability. You know, I Mm -hmm. was, I knew how to talk about my struggles and my challenges, but in a way that was very vague and didn't give anybody any chance to kind of ask any deep questions. And so when this started coming back up in our marriage um, and in my life, it just started wreaking havoc. Um, We had a great relationship, but the shame that I would have anytime I would act out, uh, anytime I'd be tempted, I would avoid her. I would do anything I could to kind of get away. And, and it was just driving her crazy. Cause she had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Um, and I was really good at hiding, really good at covering my tracks as most addicts tend to be really great at minimizing what was happening. You know, mm-hmm. I would say things like, this is a, it's a victimless crime. This isn't hurting anybody um, but that wasn't the case. Um, it really was doing quite a bit of damage and really holding us back as a couple. And we had kind of kept hitting this glass ceiling and uh, didn't know why. I knew why, but she didn't. And she decided to go into the MFT program at Fuller because she wanted to be a therapist. Um, and sh- her first class was shame and guilt, which, you oh. know, there's just <laughs> better way to start a program than with shame and guilt yeah and what actually happened was is they had a pastor come and he gave his testimony the first time he had given his testimony publicly he was three years sober at the time he had struggled with pornography with sex addiction and as he was telling his story my wife was just like this is us Mm -hmm. This, this has to be what's happening and she's writing notes down and, and just kind of feverishly trying to get all the information he was sharing. And she came home August 1st, 2013. And she told me his story. She told me what happened. And I'm just kind of nodding my head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I knew the question was coming. It had come many times before, you know, are you struggling with this? Are you struggling with pornography? Are are you struggling, you know, with, with this sex addiction? And That day was the first day I was honest with anybody in my life. And I just looked at her and I said, yes. Um, After I did, it scared the crap out of me. I I don't think I could talk for about two days. I was pretty sure she was going to pack my bags and kick me out. Um, She didn't. She handed me the list of all the resources that pastor had given her. And she said, this is where you're going to go. This is what you're going to do. And if it ever happens again, we're done. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, and so I got to work and started recovery. I went to a intensive, um, that was really helpful to, to really show me the real thing that had been happening. You know, I'd been so good at hiding from other people. I'd also yeah. hid from myself, you know? So right. I, I had no idea really the, the, the width and the breadth of of my destruction until I had to kind of face it all and, and, so I was able to go to an intensive. And then as soon as I came back, started going to 12-step groups. I got into what we call an S group, um, actually in Pasadena. And um, we used to meet right next to the Gamble House. And, mm. and so met with those guys and really found other men who were going through this struggle um, and began really finding community that that really understood what I had been through, that would get it. Mm-hmm. And as they would tell stories, I'd go, wow, yeah. That's me. That's what my brain does. Those are the crazy things I used to do and still want to do. And, and really just dove into recovery for myself. And then as well for my marriage, I wanted to rebuild what I had really taken away with my actions and this trust and fidelity that I just kind of ripped apart and committed myself to that and loved who I was becoming as I was doing it. And kind of got got hungrier and hungrier to do more. And as we grew, we started to realize that, you know, there's a lot of resources out there that are really good and helpful for addicts. There's very few resources for wives and partners and people who oh, wow. are alongside folks who are dealing with pornography and sex addiction, and then almost no resources for couples in terms of what they do. Once you decide you don't want this to be a part of your life anymore. And so that's kind of what led us to start working with individuals. It's what led me to start working with men and us to start working with couples is we wanted to, to provide better resources and more resources. And as soon as we started to kind of share our story, about two or three years after kind of that initial discovery, um, it just seemed like people started coming out of the woodwork. Um, they, would, they would call us and ask us, what did you do? How did you do this? So we started just kind of giving advice. And then eventually, you know, as my wife became a therapist, she started meeting with clients. I started coaching um, and and started taking guys on as clients, working with them, helping them to get sober and stay sober and really kind of restore their life. And, and so I, as I did it, I realized that it's it's something that I've really been um, training for and, and preparing for my whole life, not quite knowing that was where I was going to end up.
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for setting the table so beautifully. I mean, there's a million things in there um, that I want to that I want to pick out. Um, But I want to talk first about uh, about the hiding piece, because you you talked about getting to the root issue of your of your addiction and what was some of the toughest things to get over. And that was that hiding piece in the the shame. I remember for me, I started to hide my sexuality and started to become really ashamed of my sexuality around the age of 13, uh, Mm -hmm. when I really discovered the pleasures of touching myself, you know, and I realized like the, the, the sort of equal and opposite reaction, like, Oh, if I do this for a long enough, this feels like amazing. And, um, feeling really conflicted about that, you know, like my body has, has, I've, I've like uncorked this amazing pleasure center that I've never experienced before. But at the same time, I know it's so wrong because I grew up in a conservative evangelical context. So, you know, no, n- you know, no kissing, holding, none of that stuff so feeling very conflicted, started to hide around 13. Um, so that's when I started to conceal things. When, when did you in your life? Do you recall, like you really started to become a, a really good hider from, from yourself and from everyone else?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, that t- actually came, the hiding for me came a little later. Um, a lot of my early sexual behavior was in relationships. Um, you know, and so I learned around middle school we had a small youth group at our church. Um, I didn't go to a conservative church. We were part of a fairly liberal um, kind of church upbringing. but we were a part of a small church and there wasn't a ton of kids in the youth group. I think there were like six kids in my middle school, you know youth group, mm-hmm. and I remember, uh, you know, three guys and three girls. And by the third week, two of the guys and two of the girls were couples. And so that kind of left me and the one other girl to figure out like, we're going to do this or we're going to be the odd people out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that started a relationship. And I can remember, you know, when we would go on trips and we'd go on camps, you know, the guys would ask like, oh, how far have you gotten with her? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I started to realize was, whatever happened with me sexually increased my level of status in the community, you know, wow. and that um, I, as I was on the smaller side and I was, we moved around a lot. So I was the new kid. One of the things that I learned was who I dated and what happened between us sexually would increase how I was seen, you know, among my peers. And, I didn't have that concept at the time. I probably didn't have that awareness, but as I look at the pattern now, I can see that I was in this constant search for this increase in status, this increase in really my sense of identity. And, and so I kind of kept that going. Um, And, and sex was, you know, these kind of sexual behaviors were things that, that felt really good. It convinced me that I was loved and that I was desirable. And so, I, you know, I wanted more of that. And so, you know, it was constantly on to the next conquest or the next person that I would be in. And the whole time I had this way of convincing myself that I was the, the gentleman, I was the nice guy. I was, you know, I was in it for the right reasons. Um, and, and I think in some ways those were true, but I, as I see it now, I realize I was ultimately after my own gratification yeah. and, and, and where I started to hide was, was when I started to see that that desire really started changing my kind of behaviors. And mm-hmm. so instead of it being about a relationship and an expression of our connection, it, it became about how could I get what I wanted as fast as I wanted, as often as I wanted. And, and I noticed that people started reacting to that, and, you know, girls started to call me out and, you know, and tell me like, Hey, that's, this isn't okay. Like you've got to treat me right. Mm-hmm. And so I started to see myself kind of lose a little, of this sense of like the nice guy. And this was in the nineties in college, um, when high speed internet hit and all of a sudden pornography could be this way that I got what I wanted, this high this sense of of release and joy but i didn't have to risk anything mm-hmm. uh, and and so you know because i didn't have to risk anything it was it was you know it was free it was accessible i could get it whenever i wanted and it was much safer than kind of risking relationally and so for me i started to see this kind of inverse as as my pornography use went down my relationships and and that kind of that kind of sexually acting out, uh, or sorry, as pornography went up, my, my kind of relationship and sexually acting out went down as my pornography use went up. I also had this sense that if someone finds out about this, they're going to, they're going to see me differently. Yeah. Uh, You know? And, and, and it was weird because for so long it had been, I wanted people to know what I was doing. So I grew in status, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, now it was, you know, what I'm doing, I will be nothing to you. I will be sick or I will be a pervert. I will be i will be this person you don't want to be around. That's the narrative that started to kind of take hold. And um, and I started to believe this lie that like, if anyone found out what I was doing, they would reject me because I'm doing stuff no one's doing, right. you know, I'm, I'm doing things that no one would do. And, and so that lie is really what kind of fed that need to hide at the same time, I was going into the ministry, and the, the expectation as a pastor is you have your stuff together, mm-hmm. and, and you don't do these things. Even in our more liberal church, you didn't do the things that I was doing, and so I quickly learned that if I wanted to maintain these behaviors, they would have to be incredibly hidden, incredibly you know, incredibly protected, and, and so I would just go to whatever lengths it took to make sure that my behavior... Stayed within certain boundaries, mm-hmm. um, you know, and certain lines weren't crossed because I knew those lines would really jeopardize my career or my, my standing, but still got me my drug, you know, it yeah. gave me that release of what I wanted.
0: Yeah, that to me sounds like classic, like, I'm not addicted, but I'm definitely addicted behavior you know, because that was, that was kind of like the thing for me. It was, um, you know, my, I, I, so much of what your journey through, um, is, is parallel to mine. But I remember, um, reaching a point in my life where it was like, uh, when I was thinking about sexual addiction, I used to think like, no, I'm not an addict because I'm not in brothels all the time or I'm not, you know, in these in these alleyways, you know, doing all the seedy stuff or or even, you know, I don't go to strip clubs and I don't you know, I don't look at porn that much, you know. And so I would say like, OK, well, what's if I look at porn for one hour a day, you know, every day, then then I'll be an addict. Well, I only look at porn for X amount a half, a half of those times. So, so I'm not an addict. I'm, I have my addiction under control. Um, and I, I, I I have so much empathy for people in those situations, you know, because that is one of the most difficult places in life to be because your, your addiction is right there in front of you, like tapping you on the shoulder and you're like, go away, go away. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have time for you right now. Um, so for you, you, um, you had the, I want to say luck, but it wasn't really luck for your partner to call you out, you know. Um, some people might not have that. You know, what, what do you think might have been the, the trigger for you um, to, to realize, like, I do have a problem. Had, had your partner, your wife not been the person to, to stay or, or do you think you might not have realized it or ever really acknowledged it?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Things I'd like to not think about. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Such sorry. A, it's such a, no, it's such a hard question because, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to give myself credit and, and, and also be honest at the same time. I was, I was great at deceiving myself and, yeah. and I, and at the same time knowing that something was wrong. And I do think that part of what happened on that day was a culmination of me coming to terms with, with the fact that if I did not stop this, I would lose everything that I held dear. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I, um, I had gone through some bouts of abstinence, you know, kind of white knuckling periods, different times in my life. I had actually been married prior to um, my marriage to Joanna and, and, and that marriage fell apart for a lot of reasons, but some of that was, you know, this, this behavior that was going on and and my unwillingness to kind of see how it was really altering my, my sense of self and who I was and how that was changing, how we're showing up. And so as I was now in this relationship that I absolutely adored with this partner that I just felt so lucky to have, I, I was becoming more and more desperate not to lose that. Uh-huh. And I knew that if I continued, I would lose it again, you know, I would, I would, I would lose everything. And I would, I would now be starting over with probably nothing. And, and my relationship with my wife was one of that just really brought me such joy. And so I do think, even without her prompting, I was coming to a place of, of really just being sick of what my behavior was bringing me. Yeah. Um, but I also recognize that, I had no idea how to stop, what it looked like to stop, um, what I, what processes I needed to go through, and I, I would, I was in no way kind of in that place of where I would have you know, I would have maybe showed up at a twelve step meeting to check it out, you mm-hmm. know, I, mm-hmm. when I was in twelve step groups, we'd have either single guys or. Guys who were married that just decided, you know, I'm gonna come check this out. And I always used to think those are the bravest, like these people. Like, I, you know, I kind of got thrown into this with an ultimatum, and I'm thankful for that ultimatum, it, which because it ultimately turned turned into a choice for me to want to seek health for myself because I knew that would bring health to the things in my life that I cared about. But but I would always be so impressed with guys who would who would have this sense that I, I need to get get something right. And this doesn't seem right. And so I'd hope that that had been the case, but I do think it was this coming together of seeing a path forward that actually worked, that actually brought someone freedom and, and seeing that I could walk that path too. Yeah. Uh, And I'm, and I'm so sick of walking this other path of just repeating this same mistake over and over and over again, and kind of, falling further and further into this hole. And so, yeah, yeah, so I think it was, I think it was a lot of providential timing of which I am deeply thankful for. And I also acknowledge that nobody made me do anything. Yeah. Um, I made the choice to tell the truth that day. I made the choice to go to the intensives and to do the work and to put myself wholeheartedly in it. And I'm thankful for those choices. Um, and so it's been, it's nice to have both of those realities that, that I, that I had people who could show me the way and that I was willing to kind of take those steps.
0: Yeah. I, um, I was the one who just showed up at a 12 step meeting for, for the first time, excuse me. Bless you. Um, yeah, I, um, and it was because my my relationship was uh is is going through a really rough patch right now my my wife and i are going through a real rough patch right now and um i was kind of at my wits end um again i you know i, I didn't consider myself as one who struggled with pornography or struggled with you know sex addiction um but after doing some research and, and showing up at a meeting and reading some of the things you know from the 12-step program some of the definitions of sex and love addiction you know, I was like eight out of 10 and I was like, Oh my goodness. So I remember, I remember my first meeting. I remember showing up on a Wednesday night, um, finding a meeting and I just cried the whole time. I I really didn't have, it was through virtual. So I, I, I went to my first meeting during COVID time. So it was virtual. Um, but I went because I go to the park with my son, uh, usually on Fridays, different days, doesn't matter. We go to the park and there's a uh, an AA group that meets in person. They social distance and they sit in a circle. They meet in person. And one day I was there and I was listening to this guy just tell the most insane stories, just the most insane, getting kicked out of the White House. And, you know, and I don't even know if this was true, but whether they were true or not, I was thinking, I was just listening to this person share with such candidness and openness about Something that they probably were really ashamed about, but how they have found community to be around them and to hold them and to laugh with them about, um, however they're processing things from their past. And so that seeing the AA meeting made me step into, um, what they call SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Um, and so I went to my first meeting and in that first meeting, I remember being so emotional because, um, I grew up going to church, you know, I grew up going to church. I grew up looking for people to just accept me for who I am. But when it comes to sex addiction or it comes to anywhere, any sort of addiction, the church, they have a hard time accepting you, you know, um, in in practical terms. They will say that they accept you, um, but in terms of actually holding you and walking with you, it's really hard. So I remember feeling so overwhelmed of, of, of just hearing people talking about how Showing up at meetings works for them. Community works for them. Being all of these things that works for them. And um, I was just so overwhelmed with emotion because I felt safe and I felt normal. Hey, friends, just a quick break in the action to ask you a favor. Would you mind leaving us a five-star review on iTunes? It helps a new podcast like us get seen and get, fr- get viewed in front of more people. So I'd really appreciate if you would take just a second and do that for us. And we also have our whiskey and rye Patreon community. If you would like to support this show even further, there's different tiers based on your needs. And I'm pretty confident we can find something that would get you really stoked. Thanks so much for being here and being a part of our community. Let's get back to the action. You mentioned that you were kind of walking into seminary and, and, dealing with some of these things. Um, I don't want to ask too much of a leading question, but do you at all feel disappointed in the fact that you had to conceal this so much from your um, from your from your professors and people that you were learning from, and and maybe you know um, how has you how has your maybe a better question is how has your um, experience improved your faith because you still seem like you're holding on to your faith right now. You know how did you overcome that? knowing that you're going to be rejected accepting that and still moving forward, you know, how did you, how did you do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, I, I, I think it's been important for me to be honest in recognizing and naming that there was a deficiency in support and guidance around sexuality most of my life. Um, you know, I, I grew up and we called um, our cable company to get MTV you know, uh-huh. that's, that's, those were my years. Um, uh-huh. And, and I can also remember being five and six and seeing what was on MTV yeah. um, and having no one talk to me about, you know, what that meant. I mean, we used to watch Moonlighting as a family and this will, this will definitely date me, but if you've watched that show, it's, it's, it's quite sexual <laughs> and I would probably watch it as a seven and eight year old. And, yeah. you know, and so, and there wasn't a lot of, there was no sexual education in my home. There was no, there was very little sexual education um, in our church. We actually, like I said, I went to a fairly liberal uh, church program. We had a church camp that was called Sex Camp. It was all eighth grade was dedicated to healthy sexuality. I want to go back to that old curriculum and try to figure out like how much I missed. All I remember from that week was. The girls hated the guys by the end of the week, and so I just remember like whatever we whatever we got, like we missed it a little bit. Something's some off
0: in there. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, something's
1: off. But but ultimately, what I, I I need to name was is that the church failed me and the people who were responsible to provide uh, a, a safe place to ask questions, like mm. is this healthy? Is this good? Um, I didn't feel that growing up. I didn't feel like there was access to to do that. Um, and there was some failure there. Uh, and I think it's, it's important to name that. And I recognize that there were resources that I turned my back on. Um, there were opportunities to, to reach out and my shame, um, my belief that I would be rejected. Um, and that fear of that rejection caused me to, to kind of stay in my addiction much longer than I needed to. And so, Um, I, you know, I, I realize that now that it's this kind of both and um, there are definitely some failures on, I think, the side of the church and those who I would say were kind of responsible for my for my upbringing and caretaking and and some unwillingness on my part to risk my sense of self or to risk my mm-hmm. status, to mm-hmm. risk anything in belief that that coming forward would mean, you know, the kind of end of my life. And so. Um, I have to kind of own both and, yeah. and really wrestle with the reality of both. And, and I would say that, um, you know, it, that's still taking place and it's still the case, you know, when we, when we first kind of started recovery, um, we told really only three couples and didn't talk to anyone for a very long time about it, um, we eventually actually went to Nick cause we were a part of his church and he was kind of our pastor at the time. And we wanted to tell someone that we had done this recovery and that this was our, our story and mm-hmm. our reality. And we were ready to kind of break free of this hiding of it. Um, but we weren't sure where to start. So we started with our pastor and I can still remember being in his backyard telling, telling our story, terrified of what it would mean. Mm-hmm. And he he just, in such a loving way, said, like, that was incredibly brave and courageous for you to come here and tell us and to tell me, and I want you to know how not alone you are. You know, we we have so many people in our life who've been honest about the struggle, and I'm thankful that you're doing that now, wow. and I encourage you to, to feel more and more free to tell this story, and so that was such a kind of watershed moment for us to be reminded that... The church as a whole, the people in our lives that we think who will abandon us most often don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when I first when I was in my intensive, the guy who was leading it said, you know, you're going to tell people about your story and some people will come closer to you in it. And some people will go farther and push away and you'll be surprised at who's in both groups. Um, and that has really been true. There have been people because of our story who've kind of moved away and distanced themselves from us, but by and large, overwhelmingly as we have shared our story, we have had nothing but support understanding. And often when we share our story, people come to us and say, this is an area in which I'm struggling, you know, can yeah. you help? Yeah. Or I appreciated you sharing. And so that's helped a lot of, of this process. Um, and, and that, and that really did start in recovery groups. You know, it was nice to have that in a 12 step group where you could share the, the crazy details and Mm -hmm. and everyone would just nod their head and go, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah." So, you know, part of what we've learned is like what we share, where, and what are appropriate avenues. And also we, we've always shared, um, from what we feel like we've worked through Um, especially like kind of publicly uh, you know, when we talk about our story publicly, it's because we've done a lot of work to feel empowered over our, our past and not kind of imprisoned by it. And so um, I do think that's important. And, and, but that started in those kind of very safe and structured spaces first Mm -hmm. uh, before we were ready to kind of start to share more openly and, and it's still a little strange to talk about, you oh, know, absolutely. I, um, yeah. you know, when my wife and I first started doing this work, um, there's a couple in Minneapolis, we actually worked under them and in they intensive, the Mark and Deb laser. And I remember when we were working with some couples and I looked at my wife and I was like, I don't want to be the lasers. <laughs> I don't want this to be our thing. I don't want to be the sex addict people. I don't want to yeah. be the porn people. Yeah. And, you know, and she's yeah. like, do you think we're the porn people? I was like, I don't know. I just, ah, oh, it's not what I want to be. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, yeah. like I'm, you know, we're Matthew and Joanna, we're the Rapsmiths and, we, and right. we help all sorts of different people. And in this area, we have a lot of experience and a lot of great resources and helping people come out of it. So, you know, if, if that's who we end up being fine, I, you know, I, I get to this point, the cat's out of the bag. And so, um, you know, it's, it's nice to, it's nice to be kind of comfortable with that. Yeah. And, you know, just this last week we were in San Antonio and we were talking about sexual reintegration after addiction and betrayal. And I'm sitting wow. in the First Baptist Church of San Antonio, you know, and I, I just told him, I said, I am talking about sexual acts in the First Baptist Church in San Antonio. Like, yeah. God is good. God like, is good. Yeah. This is not- that. You know, yeah. this is this is an advancement of what I think is God's kingdom, and that, and and honestly, that's a lot of where I think my faith has been restored, is in knowing that there is at the very least a pocket of believers who understand that God welcomes it all, yeah, and 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 we remain His chosen, His masterpiece, even when we've done everything we can do to kind of push that image and identity away from ourselves god still says no i i know who you are you're yeah. my kid yeah. you know you're my you're my adopted and so that has helped i think tremendously my faith is to to know that we're not alone in
0: that yeah well i will say that you're uh it's the heart of a good pastor to go where you're called even begrudgingly sometimes so um <laughs> i'll offer that you know that you're doing the good work and you're you're stepping up to the call even if you're like pissed about it some days, you know, and you're just like, I don't want to. So, um, I want to, I, you keep mentioning the work that you guys do and I I want to talk about that. So just kind of to wrap up the, your, your story, you know, the road to recovery is long. Um, could you maybe share, you know, a couple of high points along the way that you, that, that really just kind of helped you keep going?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I love the chips, man. Whoever came up with, with those chips. those Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if it's kind of the, the achiever in me, you know, like I want the, I want the ribbon. Um, I can remember the 30 day chip, the 60 day chip, the 90, you know, I just, I, I I loved being able to see the time add up and um, I can remember my first year chip and Mm. how important that was to me. Um, And and how much that meant to is just a sign of like um, I'm I'm in progress and I'm really proud of that progress. So those were really helpful. Um, The, you know, for three years and seven months um, of our marriage, I had lied to my wife. And so I, I kind of set as a, um, as a time marker, you know, three years and seven months of sobriety did by no means paid back what I had done, but at least signified that going forward, we're working on the right side of honesty and safety in our relationship. And so I can remember kind of sitting with my wife and grieving that day and, mm-hmm. and celebrating that day. Um, and so that was a, a really big moment. Um, and then I would, you know, the two moments I think that other stand out. One was the um, a part of our process was to for me to seek forgiveness. And mm-hmm. so um, we went through a whole, you know, months of counseling with uh, with a therapist who was just wonderful and, and really helped us to kind of figure out what my betrayal had meant to our marriage and to my wife and what it looked like for me to restore what I'd taken away. And not the ending, but the kind of culmination of this process was a forgiveness letter in which I named, I think I was like 42 or 43 things that I had specifically done in my time of acting out in addiction that had really wrecked our marriage and, and caused great harm to my wife. And so I wrote what the action was. I wrote what the impact was on her. And I wrote, you know, my kind of acknowledgement and what I'm doing to make it right. And, and then my wife was given a choice to say, you know, uh, I would ask, do you forgive me? And she would say either yes, no, or not yet. Mm. Uh, And I think 40 of the things that I read, she absolutely said, like, I forgive you. And the other three were kind of not yet that we eventually revisited which really had to do with me kind of being safe over time right, you know right. but i remember um we we sat in the park in Pasadena up on the hill actually kind of towards Altadena and, and and i can remember sitting in that park reading that letter and her forgiving me and and i can remember it was the first time that i experienced someone um showing me <laughs> what I have to imagine God's grace is, mm-hmm. which is that I don't really deserve this. You don't have to do this and and yet you will. And and what a gift. And what I and I think a gift for our relationship, but truly more than anything, it was a gift for me. And it helped me to know what people can do when they love you well. Yeah. Um so that was a huge moment. And then the only other thing that stands out to me was the 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 first couple that came to us kind of officially in our work. Um, they came to us with a really tough story and a and a really hard discovery. And they were not really hopeful that things would turn around. Um, and we were able to walk with them and work with them for a number of years. And um, they are now one of the happiest, healthiest couples I've ever met. They're actually They've become actually good friends of ours. They're oh, business wow. partners with us. And what's crazy, this is what's truly crazy. They gave their testimony on Easter at their church in San Diego. Wow. And guess whose church it was? The pastor who had given the testimony in Pasadena seven years before. No
0: way that your wife had taken the, oh my gosh.
1: That... And, and I remember talking to a it's leader emotional. at that church. Yeah, and and I just remember saying, this is what happens when people share their stories. This is what happens when the church opens up to the reality of the brokenness in the world. And I said, this couple in your church got the resources they need because your pastor was brave enough to seek healing. And that the elders were brave enough to give that pastor a second chance and to give him space to heal and to Uh interact kind of find himself. And I said, this won't be the only story that we hear. And it hasn't been, this couple now does ministry in that church and they have, they've served so many couples and it's, it's, this is when it gets fun. You know, I, I, I told my friend, I was like, it feels like God's showing off a little bit. And I love it. you know, that, that this is what is truly possible. And so that moment when they shared that testimony and that really kind of everything came full circle for us. And that was, that was a really special day.
0: Yeah, man. That's so beautiful. I, I get emotional for a lot of reasons, but the, the main thing is, is, um, people forget that God restores everything and wants to restore everything, has a heart to restore. Everything is pained when things are broken, you know? Um, and so just to hear that full story restoration, um, man, it's just, it's beautiful. I think for myself, um, I have one moment in my recovery. I'm still on recovery. I have one moment though that sticks out is um, a time in my group, you know, we close our meetings with prayer and uh, I got to close the meeting with prayer one time. And like, I didn't, I, I didn't have like any of the normal prayers like up. And so I just asked them. I was like, would you guys mind if I like just prayed, you know, like just made up a prayer and they lit up. They were like, oh my gosh, yes, do it. And, you know, so I just did a little like impromptu prayer. I made it up and I'm telling you, Everyone unmuted their mic and was like, thank you. Like, wow, that means so much. Like, I can't believe, you know, what you said about God and God being with us and uncertainty and all of these things. Like, it means so much to me. So uh, that to me was one of the coolest moments. And it it just hearing your story just really, um, it reflects the heart of God to restore things, to restore us back to ourselves, to restore us back to community, to restore us back to who we want to be you know, um, which man, that's just so beautiful. So your work now you have a whole, um, is it a curriculum? Is it a program? Like, what is it, what is it now that you do, um, to walk with people and help them on their road to recovery?
1: Yeah, we do a couple of things. Um, A lot of our work is around our private practice. So we have a practice in San Diego, um, North County. And then we also see folks from across the country because I'm a coach, my wife also does coaching. So because we do some speaking engagements and things, we'll get people who reach out and say, hey, we, we we wanna get this right. And so we will walk individuals, couples, through the process of of restoration. Um, And so a lot of that will be, you know, um, we kind of specialize in couples, but I do work with a lot of guys who are just struggling and they want to be free of it. Mm -hmm. And either for their marriage or for their life in general, knowing that it's gonna affect their relationships kind of across the board. So, So we do that on a weekly basis. That's where we spend a ton of our time. And then the last year, about a year and a half, some of the folks who've worked with us have finally said, guys, you got to, you got to start getting this out there. Yeah. And so we are in the process of finishing up our first book. Um, it's, oh, wow. it's about the road to rebuilding intimacy. And what we, what we started to learn was the things that we're taking away from couples that deal with addiction and betrayal and infidelity are the kind of lessons and realities that every couple needs. Um, what's, what's true is that when a couple finds out there's been infidelity and betrayal, they just know that we got to start over. We got to do this differently. And, and that's what we had to do. We, we, there was a lot we loved about our relationship, but we weren't going to take that relationship forward. We needed a new marriage going forward, a new way of relating. And it had to start with honesty. It had to be grounded in safety. That was the only thing that was going to allow us to trust again. And then we had to figure out what trust looked like in our new reality. What was real trust, not this kind of fake trust that I think a lot of us practice, that's not actually grounded anything. Mm -hmm. That's what allowed us then to become truly vulnerable with each other, to really open up and to lean in and to choose each other as one. And then that's what gives us the gift of intimacy. And so that's the kind of process we take couples through and and we help people kind of see that journey from a really strategic place that they can, even when they're sitting on that couch or on the phone and that initial phone call can say, this is what's possible. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a possibility that is really, really great on the backside. Yeah. Um, what's crazy is that the research pans out that couples who are able to restore post-betrayal and addiction report the highest levels of satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, those it's couple, if they can get through it, go, gosh, like this is great now. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot to learn from them. And so that's what our book is about is kind of, what do we have to learn from couples who've had to rebuild it all? Yeah. And how can we all improve our relationships with some of those kind of concepts and ideas? So we're hoping that the end of this year, that book is going to be in print and be available. That's the goal. And that's the kind of what we're tracking. And then We're also in the process of creating online courses for people to take because we recognize that Therapy is expensive and counseling and coaching isn't always accessible to everybody. Um, We have a limited number of spaces on our calendar and a a limited number of opportunities. And we want more and more people to encounter great resources Mm -hmm. wherever they are at in the journey. And if they're in a place that they can do some self-study and some self-growth, we want to be able to provide that for them. If they're in a place that they need more kind of structured help, we want to be able to provide that. So we're excited about doing a lot of that just because it, helps us to reach more people to, to give more people hope about what's possible. Um, you know, I, I love my life now. I really do. And, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily more financially off than I ever were, or, you know, there's things that other people would say, it doesn't look that different, but for me it is, it is wholly different on, on all kind of, on all bases, And, And it's a really, it's, it's fun to live this life. Um, You know, I, I can remember sitting in a meeting and someone read the promises Mm. and I'd heard those promises so many times. I was like, yada, yada, I'll know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. Yeah. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And I, and they were reading the promises and I was just like writing a little check mark on my notepad for everyone that was true. And it was just like one, two, three. And I was like, this is my life now. Yeah, like this is the life. I do know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. Like, mm. and I know peace. Mm. Holy crap! Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, are my days all perfect? No, yeah, absolutely not. You know, we have our we have our really hard days. I have days that I'm reminded of how easy it would be to go back to that life and to hide and to numb and to escape. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I have to continue to do my work to, you know, Mm -hmm. to kind of progress every day. And I'm so thankful that I still have a group of guys I call, you know, to check with and to reflect with and to grow with. And, and so it's, it's nice and it's, it's such a joy to, to know that like, this is what's possible. And a lot of what we try to do is just to help people know that like we love, the, nothing speaks to me more than the scripture that says, you know, the God of all creation will do for us more than we can ask or imagine. Actually, I think it says abundantly more than mm-hmm. we can imagine. And I think in a lot of ways, like that's, that's what I, that's what I've experienced. And so, and what's crazy is I don't think God's done with me yet. So I'm excited for what more than I can ask or imagine looks like yeah. in the next few years. And, and I think I see I see so many guys who are just deeply intelligent and thoughtful and caring and 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 funny and and I see them trapped in a life that really um, is is way less than that what they deserve. And I think more than anything, what I love is helping guys find the life that they really deserve um, the life that God wants for them, the life that they want for themselves. And, and it's so cool when they get it, you know, Yeah. Yeah. it's so great when, when they're there and, and they get to celebrate it and then they get to help other guys go along that path. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's what still kind of brings the most joy out of me.
0: Yeah. That's so beautiful. And to hear you say how happy you are, I think is, is great because, you know, I think to myself, man, even just replayed this podcast episode for you two years ago or or however long ago, you know, if you could listen to yourself now, hear yourself say, I'm so happy or I love my life or I love how things are. Um, I just think that's really beautiful even for you to say that it's really difficult to get there though. You know, we talked about the road to self-actualization, but, um, creating self-compassion is so, um, is so important. So, you know, just as we're kind of rounding out our discussion here, what are maybe one or two things that you like to regularly practice that help you with creating self-compassion and in moving you towards that self-actualization of loving yourself for who you really are?
1: Yeah, one of the things I do is I validate my experiences and my emotions, you know, and yeah, so not afraid. Of, I'm not afraid of my emotions anymore. Um, I know what's true, and so even though my emotions will tell me things like I'm defective or all alone, um, or overwhelmed or incapable, I know that's not the truth. I'm I'm deeply capable. I'm a good man. I have incredible people around me, but I'm always I always make sure that. I don't invalidate that experience and so you know when when covid hit um our business took a dive and my wife's client load picked up and mine didn't and there were a couple of weeks you know back to back to back where i really questioned whether i was good at what i do and capable of helping people and i would have some days where i felt pretty crappy Mm-hmm. And I never beat myself up for those feelings. I always try to tell myself, you know what? It makes absolute sense that this is what you feel. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes sense that you feel like you're doing something wrong or you're failing. It makes sense that you feel like nobody's here to help you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, yeah. And and it's in that that is compassion to me. Yeah. Uh, it's giving myself the benefit of the doubt and giving myself the benefit of the doubt that I believe these things because. This was what was shown to me for mm-hmm. much of my life. You know, mm-hmm. this is what was demonstrated to me by some of the actions of the other people, of other people in my life. So, I, I've rehearsed this narrative for a long time. It'd be hard for me to see anything else. And yeah. so, instead of making it harder on myself by beating myself for even beating myself up for even having that idea in the first place, I just I show myself that compassion and say like, "Yep, yeah, I get it." Yeah. And let's be honest, it's not true. Yeah. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm I know 5 people I can call right now who would help me in in so many different ways. Yeah. I also know that I'm 8 years sober not because of of just what God has done for me but for what I have committed to do with God's help, you mm-hmm. know? And that tells me something about myself. And so I I kind of latch on to that truth and that's and that's what helps me kind of to move out of that. I think the other part of it is um is I have to practice compassion and empathy for other people. And so yep. um, it's hard it to be valid- so hard. <laughs> it's hard to validate yeah. other people. Um, but when I do it, I'm better at validating myself. You know, yeah. most of the people who are self-critical are also other critical and vice versa. So, so you true. know, if you find someone who's really hard on other people, they're hard on themselves. They just won't let you see it. And mm-hmm. so recognizing that I, I, I become who I, who I kind of act to be, you know? And so I, I believe myself capable. I act on that belief and I feel more capable. Yeah. And so part of that capability is to be patient with the people in my life who are difficult to be patient with. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got a five, three and two year old and they can, oh, wow. they can, they are easy to love and, and, and it's sometimes hard to be patient with and yeah. to love.
0: Them. Yeah. So
1: being reminded that like, there's a reason they're sad. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that they're angry. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason that my wife is hurting and withdrawn
0: yeah. and
1: it's a pretty valid one. Um, and I can, yep. and I can kind of show that ca- compassion. So that practice of other compassion has always been a, a way that's also helped me to be kinder to myself
0: yeah it's so funny you mentioned kids I have a two and a half year old and being compassionate and patient with him has completely revolutionized how I'm compassionate and patient with myself um I realize I hold myself to a very high standard um and uh as does he you know when he's trying to do stuff too, but I realize as I walk with him as he's trying to do simple tasks and um getting it and, and seeing how he gets excited that oh, I can operate the same way. It's, it's just funny how our kids teach us those types of things. It's really beautiful. Absolutely. So, you know, you at a crucial point in your life, were uh, we're given a list of resources, you know, that your wife had jotted down. If you were to just jot down like one or two things on a piece of paper to say like, Hey, start here. If you need some help, you know, what, what might those things be?
1: Um, you know, if you're struggling with addiction, I think, um, or you're stuck I am a big fan of intensives um, partly because um, sometimes we need a little bit of like a jump start to that engine. Right. And yep. you know, I, I tell people all the time intensives are like six months of therapy in three days. So you get all the things you would get, but you get it in a nice tight, quick package, which usually allows a lot of us to kind of break out of, of that, um, of that kind of cycle of destruction and kind of at least get a break from that to the Mm -hmm. point where you can, you know, kind of get healthy. Um, The intensive that I went to is in Minneapolis. It's still, it still happens every single month, faithful and true. Mm. uh, And, and the men of valor. Um, And, and I I'm still good friends with the folks who run it and we, I send someone there almost every month uh, who comes to me, and and I think there's a lot about that program that I really love. But there's a a number of really great programs out there that really allow someone who's really stuck to get unstuck, mm-hmm. so they can kind of get hold of this new life. Um, I'm also a big fan of counseling, therapy, and coaching. Yeah, um, I, I still go see a therapist. You know, um, I, I have people that I talk to. Um, I, I know that in, in doing this alone, I stand a much smaller chance of success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I always tell people get somebody who's trained to help you in this because yeah. guess what? Your friend at church who loves you a lot may be great, but may have absolutely horrible advice for what to do. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can listen to you and they can mm-hmm. hear you and they can be your shoulder to cry on, but make sure you're talking to that trained professional who can say and do this. And, you do know? This. Yeah. So, yeah. and then the last thing I think is what we've talked about is some type of community. Um, yeah. And that is a community designed around what you want to see changed. And so if that's a 12 step group, I love 12 step groups. I think they're, they're wonderful places of, of really acceptance and, and so much healing and nurturing. Um, but there's also, you know, small groups, um, that sometimes therapists will lead can be really good places. I have a group of men that I'm taking through empathy right now. We're Mm -hmm. just, they just want to grow in their empathy for their spouse. And so I've got five or six guys who just meet every week and that's what we do, you know? And, and so, but I think that community is so important because you need people who get you, you need people who. Who get it? You know, we used to have a joke at our essay meeting. You know, that we'd say, you know, you tell somebody you're going to AA, and a lot of people would be like, "Way to go! Well done!" You know. You tell someone you go into Sexaholics Anonymous and they'll usually take a step back. You know, That's exactly you, go, it. Yeah. Come on, you know, oh. but it was such a joy yeah. to go there and to tell that and have everyone go, oh God, yeah, I wouldn't tell anyone I'm here. You know, right. everyone asks me where I am on Tuesday and I tell them a men's group right. and then they ask me what group and I go Bible study and they ask me what church and not, you know, now I'm yeah. lying. Yeah. So I yeah. love, love the reality that it's good to have people who get it, yeah, who, who've been there, who are on the journey and, and can really kind of go, yep, absolutely. Welcome.
0: Welcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much of your story and so much of your vulnerability with us. And, um, you mentioned you're writing a book, any release date? Um, is that still going to be a while? Um, We're
1: planning for Christmas, planning so for Christmas. If okay. you can actually the if you go to uh, the intimacypyramid.com, okay we've got a website that kind of walks through what the core of the book is going to be about and and that'll be it'll have kind of updates on what's coming out. There's a few resources there. Awesome. Uh, and you can also go to our private practice website, which is uh, Renovate love dot com so that's a a great way to get in touch with us and and kind of if you have questions and we love to help people even if they don't work with us we love to get people into the right resources and the right support networks um, no matter what because that's what changed our life and so we want to do that for others
0: great well we're going to make sure to put both those links in the show notes if you do end up uh, connecting with Matthew um, or any of them you know make sure you let them know that you heard on the show and uh, mention the episode but uh, again just thank you so much for for being here and for sharing, uh, for sharing your time with us. It was great to meet you.
1: Wonderful to be here. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Cheers. alright friends there you have it again want to say thank you to my guest Matthew for sharing his story and sharing about his journey and uh, the work that he does with couples and men and addiction uh, the links to all of his resources are in the show notes and we'll keep an eye out for his book and uh, maybe they'll come back when uh, uh, when the book is published so uh, thanks for being here thanks for being a part of the community uh, one update for you uh, and that is that if you want to check out all all of the installments for our What is Love series on our Patreon, you can do that. They're all available now, and this is free. You don't have to be a paying Patreon to get this content. Though, if you do find that you like the show and you want to connect with me and the show on a more regular basis, Patreon's a great place to do that. You get access to me, we can video chat, uh, we can talk a little bit more with me some feedback on the show some insights we can talk about whatever you want um, but there are great levels on patreon and that's how this show is supported uh, i do this for free don't do ads uh, support this just through my patreon so i would invite you to join us in that all right nothing else to update you with thanks for being here uh, i appreciate you walking with me and being a part of the whiskey and rye club let's dance our way out cheers to the deep west cheers to you have a great day